We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I told you that we were going to work through these concepts of dominion in a rather methodical, slow pace. It's been a while since I've just sort of slowed down and tried to uh, explore and expand a topic or an area in a little bit greater fashion. Sometimes in church life, it's just the way it is. It's the way the Holy Spirit works, and sometimes it's just the way it happens, and it's in order that you know, Sunday after Sunday or Wednesday after Wednesday, you'll just bring topics to the people and you'll share a topic and it will be important and, and, and practical and, and it can be applied easily and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But I do believe there is benefit uh, on occasion to just slow down in an area, doesn't matter how many weeks it takes, and just dig a little. And let's see if we dig far enough, we might hit gold. Amen. So I'm going to dig a little bit in this dominion area because uh, this was one of the mandates God gave to his creation when uh, he put it in the earth. He wanted us to rule. And so go ahead and find Psalm uh, chapter 8. We're going to start the second half of what we began last week, which we've already been running in this area of dominion. And I entitled the lesson, How Dominion is Released. How Dominion is released. And again, I'm going to read this psalm to you so much in these weeks. You're going to have it memorized. Oh my goodness, memorize the word. And I believe that as you memorize it and as it gets into your DNA that you will be a dominion person. Psalm 8 verse 3. The psalmist writes, "When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers," he's speaking to the Lord, "the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, the Elohims. You remember what Elohim means? It means ruler. Most of the time it was used as God as ruler, Elohim. But in this case, he uses the plural form, which which could be just translated, you've made him a little lower than than the rulers. God's a ruler. You've made him a little lower than that. The angels rule, and you're just a little lower than the rulers you've crowned him with glory and honor and then verse six you have made him to have what yes dominion over the works of your hands you have put all things under his feet all the sheep and oxen even the beasts of the field the birds of the air the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas and we have been mining in these areas of dominion now I'm going to ask Matt is back there on the computer. And so uh, I told Matt as we go through these review sections that he's just going to have to listen to me say, change the slide. So Matt, change the slide. All right. Four things. You know this already. I'm not going to read it to you again. Four things God said to Adam and Eve with regards to dominion in the book of Genesis. And this is how we would begin to define what dominion is. Those four things are be fruitful. In other words, become productive. He said, secondly, multiply or expand yourself and excel. Thirdly, he said, replenish or fill up your surroundings. And the fourth thing he said was to subdue, which I have come to understand means to manage and to order your success. These four things, dominion exists within these four concepts. That's what God said. He said, this is what uh, you as human beings were designed to do. Change the slide. Now, The question has been, 
well, how does that happen? How's that made manifest? How's that, how's that take place? And I mentioned to you, in the book of Genesis, in the first three chapters, we see the creation account, and then we see the fall. And in the fall, we know that sin entered into the picture, and because sin entered into the picture, alienation took place with God. Uh, through this rebellion, uh, they had, Adam and Eve, they had to be driven out of their garden, which was, I believe, their test tube of dominion. I believe God always gives us a garden before he gives us the world. And if you can't handle your garden, you'll never get anything greater than that. Some of you probably right now are in gardens that God's wanting you to rule in in order that you will qualify yourself to go to that great place that he has for you. But they could not handle their garden. And so um, a curse, so to speak, was declared upon them and, and a lot of the fruits of their lives, uh, both upon the enemy. Satan was told on the very moment it took place that there would be enmity between he and the woman and, and her heel would bruise his head. And we know that was satisfied and took place at the birth of Christ, that Christ has literally uh, uh, disabled the enemy and he's just waiting for us to implement it. Amen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's it's just about us stepping in to that authority. He spoke to the woman and spoke to the woman that there would be uh, pain and difficulty with regards to childbirth and that there would be probably a contentious atmosphere with regards to uh, her desire to to rule even in the household. And God was going even in those beginning stages to set up uh, uh, an authority line and a hierarchy and covering and these sorts of things. But what I zeroed in on was the man. Because it was said of Adam, he said, now from this point forward, you're going to toil. And by the sweat of your brow, you'll begin to glean, you know, the fruit of the earth. And what that said to me was that before the fall there was going to be either something supernatural or there would be such ease related to how they would uh, survive and maybe harvest foods or, or there just wouldn't be any care. The food would come to them day by day by day. They would just trust God on a, on a daily basis and he would provide. And you know, we, we would just be speculating as to how all of that would work. But there was going to be a divine ease that would happen to them with regards to their provision and their rulership as they were in that pristine state before the fall. But after the fall, God says it's not going to work like that anymore. And that you're going you're gonna to have to exercise uh, some, some energy. Remember ergon and energia? You're going to have to exercise some energy in order to see the things that I promised come to pass. And so that brings us to where you and I are. I don't know about you, but sometimes life's not easy. Well, maybe I ought to go back. Most of the time, life's not easy. In fact, favor is the exception rather than the rule. In the garden, favor was the rule. But now, it seems to be the exception. And a part of the issue is we've not understood God's ways, and we began to crack open the door with how God implements dominion now in the earth. And it's through what we call work. Now, I didn't say a job, did I? I said, work. Very, very different. Some of you go to a job, but you don't work. <laughs> Some of us work and don't have a job. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of moms. That's right. Moms, moms don't get paid for what they do, but they sure work hard at it, don't they? That's true. That's funny. That's very true, though. 
So you know what I'm saying. It's not just a job. It's, it's the concept of work. Matt, change the slide. Yeah, ergon and energia, two different words. Supernatural, there's supernatural. The works that I do, Jesus said, you shall do, and greater works than these. He was talking supernaturally, that you would do supernatural things. Isn't that good news? But there's another word, energia, which literally means labor or physical effort, and that's the word I'm really zeroing in on. Next slide, Matt. I told you there were three misconceptions about this work. Show them quickly. Remember what I said? We live under these myths that leisure is better than work, that retirement is not the goal of work, and that I can get something for nothing. Now, now I'm just telling you that you will not find uh, any of these concepts in Scripture. It's interesting that God says, six days you shall what? And you'll rest one. Now, he didn't say six days you had to go to a job. He just said six days, though, you're going to have to work because there's something about work that, that literally is spiritual and can release supernatural things. Next slide, Matt. Now, this is where we left off our last time together. Are you all caught up now? Do you feel caught up? All right. Let's talk about work. I, I, if, if, if you need more of the blanks filled in, go to iTunes and get it there. The benefits of work. I'm not talking about a job. I'm talking about a work. I I mentioned last time that there are people right now. Well, let me just say this. And this is not a a politically uh, conservative statement. This is a biblical statement I'm about ready to make to you. The people who, who sit in parks in the Occupy movement may have a point with regards to let's say, corporate greed or Wall Street bailouts. They may, they may have a valid statement to be made there. But let me share this with you. Sitting in a park will never activate what they want to happen in their life. It won't work. In fact, when they sit in a park and they say, I can't get a job commensurate with the abilities that I went to college to get a degree for, I can't get a job like that, and they're complaining, and they, you know, I'm not going to take some minimum wage job in order to do what I've been, tra- you know, I've been trained to do this, and I, you know, and the whole economic mess. Listen to me. Listen to me. Everybody starts from the bottom and works their way up. Nobody starts at the top. The only people that start at the top, you know, are, are you know, a, a ditch digger and a the guy that, you know, presides and throws the dirt on the casket. I mean, he's the only guy that starts on the top. Everybody else, you know, starts at the bottom. And you work your way up. That, that's, it, that, that's not just a worldly principle. It's a godly principle. The Bible says if you're faithful in that which is lesser, you'll be given that which is... See, these are biblical concepts. So, so understand, you will never get to something greater unless you're faithful in that which is lesser. And in order to be faithful in that which is lesser, you have to work at it. And so it's better, even if you don't have a job, to go volunteer or work for nothing. Now, I'll just share this with my son Tyler who is wanting to break into media, radio, or television. And he, he went to school. He learned all these things. He, he got his skills. And then they told him right off the bat, they say, if you want to get into this field, you're going to have to go somewhere, and you're going to have to work for free for a while. 
Because that's the only way you get in in this business. Now, I can tell you a lot of kids that went to that broadcasting school said, sayonara, I need a job. Now, I understand you may be in a position you have to get money now. I got that. But, but here's the deal. You literally have to go in and you go to this job and you work for nothing. Isn't that a wild concept, Bill? That's a wild concept. And they do it for nothing. Until what happens? You become, in some area, indispensable to them. And once you become indispensable, then what do they do? They, exactly, they pay you. Now, I don't know whether that's a good way or a bad way to go about it, but I'll tell you this. What happens is, is they figure out, if, if you ain't going to work for nothing, you ain't going to work for something, probably. I mean, you know, why well, pay you and then we'll figure out this when we'll just see what your character is made of. Well, the, these are such great principles because God is able to use that. And, and I want you to remember that. I, I will believe with you that you will never lose your job, that you will never have a time when you'll be out of employment or unemployed. But if you're ever unemployed, listen to me. Do not become, you know, immobile. Put your hand to something. Go mow your neighbor's lawn. Go help somebody go to the grocery store. Go volunteer at Tri-County. Go to the church and say, I'll sweep, I'll sweep the floors for you. I'll do it for free. Find something to lay your hand to because in doing that, something spiritual and supernatural begins to happen that God can begin to use. Do you think Joseph was being paid in Potiphar's house? Do you think he was being paid in prison? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know that there were stores back then in prison. I think they have them now, but I don't think there was any stores back then in prison. He worked for a couple of decades in a in a enslaved uh, environment, enslaved environment for nothing. But yet that was that was the atmosphere that God used to spring him out of that to lift him to be number two in all of Egypt. Now you got to get this principle. He wasn't just sitting in a cell checking off the days on the calendar. He put his hand to something. It's a biblical principle. I'm not sure if I, I don't know if I'll get here. I'm going to keep saying it. That's why we need to take prisoners and get them out of their cells and get them on our highways and pick up trash and mow the lawn. And, and, you know, and, and then we argue over what? We're going to pay them something? Well, No. I'm feeding them and putting a roof over their head every night in an air-conditioned or heated environment. No, let them, let them put something in motion that can benefit and, and, and as well as train and as well as function according to a precept that when they are released, well, who knows? They may have a skill. They, they certainly will have an ethic by that time, I would think. I would hope so. And uh, see, these things make your kids do chores. Does anybody use the term chores anymore? I, do you have, I figured at the farm there were some chores that went on. Make them do some chores. Something. Make them, they won't, it won't destroy their psyche to make their bed or put dishes in the dishwasher 
or wipe down the table or mow the lawn or wash the car. Come on. Amen. Think You're not doing it just to be difficult or because you've got free labor for 18 years. You're doing it in order to train them in the ways of God. Paul said, if a man won't work, let him not eat. Are you following me? If a man won't work, he didn't say if a man didn't have a job. He said if a man won't work, let him not eat. I respect anybody that'll stay busy. And, and there's an appropriate place for that. All right? And, and, and so I'm telling you, there's a place for compassion. There's a place for help. I don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I, you know, this is not to say we're not to be uh, uh, uncompassionate, but, but this, is, this is the enemy. You know, the reason why, through the years, all, slowly and insidiously, all the compassionate help has got shifted from the church to the government is because the government does not keep the citizenry accountable as to whether or not they are practicing biblical precept. You see, you come to the church for help, and I will help you, but I will help you not just for the moment, but to get out of where you're at. And you'll find out that most people don't want to get out of where they're at. They just want help for the moment. And that's why this has shifted, because you see, you can have babies out of wedlock and get paid for it, where I would look at you and say, kick the boyfriend out of the house, don't sleep with anyone until you're married to him, we will help you walk this out, but this is the precept that works. But the carnal heart goes, I don't want that. I want, I want to be helped, but I don't want God's way. And that's, it's just what the enemy, he's shifted. That's why, that's why government has suddenly become godlike in our lives. Because there is no accountability. It's just throw money at it. Let's just throw money at it. Just throw money at it. And we're throwing money at everything. And, and it's what Malachi said. We, we, we are walking around with holes in our money bag. And God is blowing it away. And it's falling through. And we don't understand what's going on. We just think we just generate and tax and do these things. Listen, this is not... I'm not dealing with liberal and conservative ideology. I'm talking about the Bible. I'm teaching you the Bible. Yes, Banks have done wrong. Corporations have done wrong. Yes, there are greedy rich people. Yes. Yes, they need to be addressed. I don't listen, listen, I'm an equal opportunity political offender. Okay? But 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 we've got to we've got to understand God's ways and all of these things. And one of them is work. You got to work. You've got to put your hand to something. So if we're going to help people, see my view is if you're going to help people. Even in uh, welfare items, I think that there, there ought to be some work associated with it. Even if it's simple work, just some work. Because it's a precept. It's not, it's not being hard. It's a precept. All right, and I'm going to show you why. Let me show you the benefits of work. Proverbs 14. Can you post Proverbs 14, 23 real quick? This is in the Bible. Listen to this. In all labor, some of your translations will say in all work, there is What? There's that word, that word prophets in the Bible. <laughs> not, not like, you know, Nathan and 
Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's this, this, we're talking about making a profit. In all labor, there is profit. And I'm just not talking about money, nor do I believe the Scripture is just talking about money. I believe there is profit. It is profitable for you to work. Why? Because God, God can do things in that moment. But idle chatter leads only to poverty. That's what goes on in Washington, D.C. right there. Idle chatter, and this nation is becoming impoverished. All right, I've got to let all that stuff go now. Let's go. Let's talk about the benefits of work. All right? Number one, what's the benefit of work? Number one is it's an opportunity to fulfill a God-given dream or destiny. If Even if a person is on welfare or benevolence, you need to be working because activity releases pur- purpose. And God's law, listen, God's law works for sinners too. You know that. If they, even if a sinner practices a precept, it's amazing how God makes that work even for them. That's why hardworking sinners prosper. It's because it's a precept. Um, let, me, let me just share this. I did a time audit one time. I was doing something that you, when you can tell I was lacking something to do at a, a particular moment. And I started thinking, I was looking at my day, and, and I started, follow this real closely. I did what I call a time audit. There are 168 hours in a week. 168 hours in a week. Now, I use the 6 to 1 ratio out of Genesis because Genesis said that we were to rest one day and we were to work six. So I'm using the 6 to 1 ratio that I found in the book of Genesis. And I started to figure some things up. I just did a little math. I figure if I give myself, and I don't sleep, you know, I'm getting older now, so I don't sleep eight hours anymore at night. You know, when you get older, for whatever reason, you don't sleep as long. Although sometimes I do need to catch an hour in the middle of the day now, which is really helpful. But I still gave myself eight hours a day. So if, it's, if I need eight hours a night to sleep, that's 56 hours. So now I have 114 hours left. Now, it, let's say I'm working hard, just whatever it is I'm doing, and, and so... I just, I'll just put down 50 hours. Can we just agree that that, that, would, that would at least indicate someone who's working, all right, 50 hours a week. So now I have 64 hours left. Let's say I give three hours a day to focus on nothing but my family. Three hours a day. Now, ladies, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be a lot? Wouldn't you think? Think about it. Three hours a day. Not a week. I said a day. Three hours a day, all right? That would be 21 hours a week, so I've got 43 hours left. Now, let's say I just keep two hours a day to myself just to do me time, just a little me time, two hours a day. That's 14 hours, so now I have, what, 29 hours left. Now, think about that. I focused more time on my family than probably I currently am focusing I've slept at least eight hours, which is probably more than I need to sleep. I've been at my job more hours than probably what I would be required in any full-time situation. All right? I've got 29 hours left. 29 hours left. 29 hours left. What do I do with those 29 hours? I golf. (laughs) But I could do that in the playtime. Because even if I worked, let's say, a little extra, and I just burned up some of my play hours in work... It only takes like three to four hours to play a golf game. So think, you know, I'm just saying, do you understand how much time there is in our life? 
that's dormant. That's the only point I'm making to you. There is a lot of dormant time in our life. Now, there may be other things that you say, and I know we're all busy people. We've got to drive to get there. We're getting kids to school. We're getting them to hobbies and events. I, I, I understand. My only point I'm making is, is that if you want a God destiny in your life, you're going to have to begin to understand that you're going to have to work, maybe work even beyond your job, or putting your hands to something even above your job, in order for God to use those things in order to open up doors for you. Are you following me? That's one of the benefits. That's a benefit. That's not a problem. See, our problem is we want to do eight hours a day, punch the clock at eight, leave the work at, at five. We, we want to make sure we catch our television shows. We, you know, we, we, and, and then we're sitting there on our couch waiting for our ship to come in. And that's just not how it works. All right? So it's an opportunity to fulfill a dream. Number two. One of the benefits is provides for your needs. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, the Bible says, uh, in fact, I'm going to run it down because I don't think, Matt, I got it uh, that back there for you. 1 Thessalonians uh, 4.11, it says uh, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. So work provides for our needs. We're not to be a burden to others. That's God's word. In as much as it is possible, we are not to burden one another. Now, obviously there are times that we have needs and we are community and the body helps. But, but the scripture tells us we're to do our part as to not be burdensome on others. So if you're out of work, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. It's, don't get on a guilt trip, I understand. It's, it's a tough economic scenario out there, and everybody needs compassion, and there are reasons that we form community, and so that's perfectly appropriate. But the Bible says that God has never seen the righteous begging for bread. You know why that is? It's because righteous means they are doing right things. They're, not just, they're just not imputed to be righteous, but in that context, they're doing those things that literally are right before God. And when you're doing that which is right before God, it provides for your needs. All right, number three. Benefit of work. It reveals hidden talents. How do we know what's in you unless what's in you gets out of you and it will only get out of you when you work? You got to do something. Work draws out your potential. You, how, how would you know that you have a great gift of organization if you're never thrown into a messy closet and you're told to organize it? You may never know that. You may never know unless someone looks at you and just sits you down at something and says, I want you to do it. And if you look at them and say, I've never done this before in my life. And they look at you and say, well, there's a first time for everything. Enjoy. I've had jobs like that. I mean, I didn't know what I'm doing. You wouldn't think being a custodian would be hard. I mean, what could be hard? Let me tell you, there is a technique, and there is, isn't it, Michael? You wouldn't think doing carpets and floors. Now, I know Michael does this for a business. And I've had Michael come through, and he's worked on our carpets, and he's done our floors. And he'll just start talking about what they're made of and how you deal with it. And you never use this, and you do do this. And when you do, and I mean, and I'm looking, I'm going, geez. This is amazing. I'd have just thrown water on it and just tried to suck it up there, you know, and I'm just, I don't know. But 
But you know what? I, how do you know that unless you're just thrown into it? And, and you work at it, and, and all of a sudden, it, I don't know how Michael learned it. He did it. It became, it became his business, and, and, you know, God prospers his hand at these things. You don't know unless you put your hand to it. Don't you know that children, and most of us think this way, we give them opportunity like to play an instrument? Now, some of them don't have a stitch of talent in that area. Play an instrument. But how many of you also know they don't start out as pros? Most of them, unless they're prodigies. I mean, they don't, they don't, you know, you don't throw them behind a synthesizer and, you know, at three years old, they're, you know, they aren't doing that. You know, they're, they're, you know, they can barely do chopsticks. And, you know, and they're using two fingers. So they start with, you know, chopsticks, but, but if they keep at it, it reveals hidden talents. And so I, I, you got my point. That's what work does. It reveals hidden talents. Number four. It rejoices in achievement. I think I mentioned this already. Isn't there a satisfaction or a fulfillment when you've worked at something and, and you can see, you can see uh, the completed project? I know, I know when my wife does the house, and maybe we're cleaning up for a gathering or a get-together, and she gets done, it's, uh, you can see she just looks around, and it's her domain. And it's like, whew, that's nice. I'll do the yard, get the yard work all done. And it's like, yes, this is nice. You know, that's just, it, it does, doesn't it? It rejoices in achievement. When you get a promotion, doesn't that make you feel good? I don't know how many of you work for people, but when you get a promotion, it feels good, doesn't it? Sure it does. Why does it feel good? Because you worked at something, somebody honored it and lifted you up, and that wouldn't have happened unless what happened? Work. Work took place. Yes, work. Number five, the benefit of work is that it builds self-esteem and contentment. If you feel worthless, discontent, and frustrated, I'm going to give you a hint. Get up and go do something. If you're feeling depressed and discouraged, I don't know, go mow the lawn. Don't sit in the house, turn out the lights, and think about whatever it is you're thinking about that's getting you in what we used to call the mully grubs. I don't even know where that came from. Come on, get up and go wash the car. Do something. Organize a closet. Do the garage. Why is that? It's because the minute you, you begin to exercise energia and you step back from whatever it is you are doing, you will instantly feel better. Yes, you will. A long, hard day's work, even though you might not like your job and you worked hard at it, but when you come home, there's something about a day's work that just can raise your self-esteem. Work gives opportunity to focus on becoming a solution rather than nursing and rehearsing the negatives of your life. That's what it does. Dormant people are usually depressed people. Active people are usually positive people. I really believe this to be true. And, you, and, and just, you just test out that theory sometime. Find, find dormant people and, and, and analyze uh, whether or not they are predominantly positive or negative. And I'm just simply saying the answer a lot of times is arise, do something. All right? Build self-esteem. Number six, work controls your environment. It's a benefit. It controls your environment. I also think I just mentioned, by way of introduction, this may have been a couple weeks ago, 
how for some of us when we go and we're working hard at wherever it is uh, we're hired, let's say, uh, it tends to make those around us who are not as hard a workers feel like they're put on the spot. So you understand that a hard worker controls the environment. A hard worker is the one that sets the temperature. I've done that before, man. I, I remember I would work on the farm for my uncle every summer. You've heard all these stories. And you know, when you're at school for nine months and you're a city boy, and then you go off for the summer to work on the farm, of course, they've been working at a pace on the farm that is amazing. I mean, they just if you work on a farm and your sustenance in life depends on the fields and the and the and the livestock and all that's there. I mean, you, you have to get up in the morning and you work at it because ain't nobody going to cover for you that day. If you're sick that day, it don't matter because the cows still need fed, they still need milk, they still need whatever they need happen. Chores still have to be done. The wheat still has to be harvested. You know, the corn still has to be irrigated and nobody gives a flip that you got some sniffles. And that's just how you work it out on a farm. I'll never forget being sick one time on the farm and, of course, you know, my grandmother was compassionate to me, and she called my uncle and said, I don't think Kevin can be there today. And he said, don't worry, I'll be by to pick him up. <laughs> and he picked me up, and his answer to everything was, get up and start working, and you'll feel better. And it's amazing how your body, <laughs> all of a sudden, because of the work, your body responds to it and says, well, I guess I better feel better because I'm going to have to do this anyway. It's amazing. But it controls your environment. A worker controls your environment. A worker gets the promotion. A worker gets the raises. A producer, not a taker, is the one that controls the environment. Because producers attract producers. Talent attracts talent. People gravitate to those who are in the arena. One of the things, and and I work with pastors all over the nation now, and one of the things that we have to underscore, and, and that's why I think it's good for every pastor before he's ever a senior pastor needs to be a staff pastor. And I'll tell you why. Number one is so they understand that there's a lot more to this than you just, you know, figure out five minutes before service starts what you're going to say that morning. There's a labor to the ministry. Those of you that work your own business, you've got to set your clock, get up in the morning, you may have to harvest your own clientele. I mean, a lot of people who own their own business are really, really hard workers because they know if they don't get up and get it done, they aren't going to eat. And, and so, you know, there's, there has to be ingrained in us, and particularly in the ministry, and, and I'll be the first one to admit it, there are a lot of guys that are, that are lazy at it, and we've got to knock the lazy out of them. You say, get up, set your clock in the morning and get up. Get up. I know no one's going to call you and probably call you on the carpet on it except for me right now. I'm saying I know what goes on. Get up. Get going. And then finally, number seven, uh, the benefit of work is that it expands your influence. It expands your influence. Turn to Luke chapter 19 real quick, and we're going to end here. This is one of my favorite passages. It's also in Matthew, a similar one in Matthew 25, but we'll look at the Luke 19 one where uh, Jesus begins to tell a parable, 1911, concerning a nobleman who went to a far country and he was going to return and he had ten servants 
and you'd know this story. This is the one where he hands these ten servants uh, some minas, which is money, and he says, do business with this until I come. But the citizens hated him, and uh, they don't want this, this nobleman to reign over them. And so he eventually comes back to this kingdom, and he asks the servants with whom he gave the money to what they did with it. And in verse 16, it says, the first came and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more. So he took one mina and he translated it into ten. Somehow or another, I don't know if he invested it. I don't know if he worked at it. I don't know what he did to get ten from the one, but that's what he did with that. How many of you would agree he did something to turn one into ten? And this is what verse 17 says. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, which was the mina, right? One mina. Because you were faithful in very little, he says, you will have authority over what? Ten. Isn't that amazing? So he was faithful with his little mina deal. And all of a sudden, when the master comes and he sees he was faithful over this one mina deal, he gives him Ten cities. And literally, as you go through the parable, we find out that those that were faithful, he gives them, they were faithful with money, but he gives them cities. Now, hear what the point is. The point is this. When God gives you something and you lay your hand to it, you never know what door may be opened by that one little thing. They were handed one little money. It was totally unrelated to what their destiny ultimately would be by having rulership over these cities. You understand there was no cause and effect. They were given a little money, but it ended up opening doors to giving rulership over a city. How does, how does dealing with money have anything to do with this ruling over cities? See, that's our natural mind. Our natural mind thinks that if you're given something, a little thing, and it's not related to your calling, that you won't do it because you can't see God in it. There are going to be times in your life that you're going to be handed something that has absolutely nothing to do that you perceive with your destiny, and God's waiting to see, will you work with it? Will you invest energy in it? Will you be faithful with it? And if you will do that, somehow, some way in a totally unrelated area, the door will open and you'll be given influence. I told this story to Clay. I'll end with this one and and we're three minutes and and we're done. I told Clay when he went to Hillsong, Australia. Before he left, now he's grown up in my house, so you know growing up in my house, you're going to hear it. And so we, we sewed into him. We said, now listen, Americans have a reputation overseas It's already established. There's nothing you can do about that, but you've got to show them you're not like every other American. You get to that place. You're there ahead of schedule. You stay after they say you can go. If you want favor, you're going to work your way to favor. You be there no matter what. You understand? He He got a place to live two miles away from the campus. He had to walk every day there and back, two miles. So think about that. For two and a half years, walking there and back to that Hillsong campus. When he got there, he just immediately just threw himself in. He did, one of the few times, he did exactly what his dad did, asked him to do. He just threw himself in. And he would be there. And, and instantly, everybody's excited. You understand that when 
when people are asked to do things and they're at a new place, everybody gets excited. And so there's nothing wrong with that. We're glad everybody's excited and all these American kids were excited. And so they're all doing their acts of service. But as the weeks and the months go along and everybody's walking two miles there and two miles back, and everybody's kind of getting into the thing. And you know how it is. Suddenly, instead of having 500 kids show up to help for this event, it gets whittled down to 300. Then another month, and it's whittled down to 150. And then it's whittled down, and now there's just 50. And you know that you can just see how it works. You know how it works. Until finally, he stayed late one night putting up chairs, and he was all by himself putting up chairs. All by himself. And we're talking, when you put out chairs at Hillsong, we're not talking about 50. We're talking about 10,000 chairs. Now, I don't know that there were 10,000 chairs sitting there for him to pick up, but we're just talking about there's a lot of chairs. And he's doing this. And as he's putting up chairs, and I don't even know what all's going in his mind. He just told me the story. He said, Dad, I was just putting up the chairs. And all of a sudden, Reuben Morgan came up to me, who was one of the songwriters. Along with Darlene Check, there were only about two or three songwriters, Joel and Reuben and Darlene. Those were the only three that wrote songs for Hillsong. And Reuben came up to him while he was there all by himself. And he said, hey, Clay, what you doing? He said, well, <laughs> putting up chairs. I'm not holding a concert, I guess. You know, I don't know what he said. <laughs> putting up chairs. Reuben said, oh, I tell you what. Why not tonight you sing backup for us on stage? Now, we're talking Hillsong United. Now, wait, now the, the, the story's not over. So he's putting up chairs, totally unrelated to being a singer on stage, right? You're just putting up chairs, right? Just putting up chairs. Somebody walks in. A door starts to open. That night, I don't know where they were at. He was singing back up there for uh, Hillsong United. And in the middle of the concert, Reuben was out front. Joel was singing, Joel Houston was singing. They were all there, all these famous people that you heard of. And, and Clay's in the background and he's singing back up. And all of a sudden, Reuben turns around and he goes, and now we're talking, now we're talking thousands of people that show up to this concert. He turns around and he goes, hey, Clay, you lead this one. And he throws the microphone at him. And Clayton steps up in Australia and at that point became the first American ever in Hillsong history to lead music in front of thousands at that moment. You want to know how that happened? That's how it happened. And now, he blows my mind. He opens up, I look at his cell phone, and he's got Joel Houston's cell phone number in there. He's got, he's got Ruben's phone number, and these guys come to Atlanta, and they talk. And, you, and everybody wonders, how do you get there? I didn't know these guys. He didn't get there because of me. I don't know any of these people. They don't even know I exist. It wasn't through his daddy. You know what it was through? His mina was a chair that he just worked at. And he walked two miles to get there to put up a chair. And he walked two miles home. And he did it for months until God moved. And in, in an amazing way, a door opened. Now listen, here's the good news. God is no respecter of person. What he would do for me or what he would do for Clay or what he would do for any other testimony or story we could parade up here for you. He will do for you. But here's the key. He does it according to his word. And his word says, work. 
following me? You never know. You say, well, if I had a guarantee that in two, two and a half years, I, no, 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 uh, 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 uh. Joseph's, Joseph's time period was like 18 years. David, I think, spent at least a decade in the caves of Adullam. Oh, if I could get guarantees, I'd be the first one in line for the guarantees and the rain checks. There ain't no guarantee. This is about being faithful as unto the Lord. If you want me putting up chairs for the rest of my life, I'd rather be a doorman in the house of God if it's pleasing you. Do you understand there are miracles awaiting each of you in this room tonight? If you've got ears to hear. Amen? Stand with me. I'm going to let you go.